Good morning. How, how's that? All right. Well, it's good to be with you today. Uh, Trevor is actually preaching at Doxa this morning, and then Jared is at All of Life. So we're all tag teaming, and it's a beautiful thing. Um, how awesome that we get to partner together in the gospel, and because of that, be a greater presence of the good news of Jesus in our various cities. Well, over these weeks, we are thinking about Advent. We're thinking about the arrival of Jesus Christ, his coming. And we're thinking particularly about one verse, Isaiah 9, 6. Um, he is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace. And so today we're going to look primarily at Jesus as the mighty God. Uh, let's, let's be reminded, though, of the context of Isaiah. It was 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. Israel was living in complete and utter rebellion against God. So they were living in spiritual darkness. I mean, listen to how Isaiah starts the book. I'll just read for you. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O Lord, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have what? Rebelled against me. Nobody wants that for their kids, right? Look at verse 21. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now, what? Murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your best wine has been mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves the bribes and run, runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, to the widow's cause, and the widow's cause does not come to them. It's, it's a picture of their complete downfall, and the first few chapters of Isaiah are pretty sobering. In chapter 8, right before chapter 9, we see that God's people are actually um, afraid of rumors and conspiracies. This is an interesting one to pay attention to today, right? There's rumors and conspiracies, and the people, God's people, are living in fear and in dread and in uncertainty. And Isaiah says that you would think people would run to their God, right, and trust in him, but they're going after necromancers. Anybody know what that is, a necromancer? People who believe that they can speak to the dead on our behalf. And so God's people are seeking after witchcraft and sorcery. And Isaiah says, why are you doing this? Shouldn't the people of God inquire of their Lord? And Isaiah is this prophet that God has raised up to speak truth over them. Listen to how chapter eight ends. And they will look where? To the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. You guys, that does not sound good at all, does it? Thrust into, into, into deep darkness. They've been looking to worldly wisdom. And what has that led to? Spiritual darkness, distress, anguish, darkness. And the scene is definitely hopeless, especially with this Assyrian army coming in right? It, it is not a good scene. But then we hit chapter 9, and Isaiah gives us this prophecy of the, the light that is to come that will break in in the thick of black, light in the darkness. And he's speaking of Jesus Christ. 
And he gives us a picture of what that will be like. He says, there will be joy, right? The nation will multiply. In other words, it, it will not dwindle in numbers. There will be an increase in population, right? There will be kids and families and joy. Um, there will be joy like the harvest time. So there will be fruits and vegetables and plenty to share and there will be abundance and overflow and all the needs will be met. This is the picture he's talking about. There will be a heavy yoke of slavery, no more. You'll have freedom. No, no more slave, but free. And this is the picture he's bringing of when, of when the light comes, when the Messiah comes. And I'll just ask you, maybe you're in this season how many of you are loving this season of Christmas time? A couple of you? You've got your Christmas lights up? Some of you, you've got the blow-up things in your front yard? No, not going to go that far. Some of you are drinking eggnog? No? I'm sorry. That is, my eight-year-old came from home from school, and he's like, Dad, can we put Christmas music on? I'm like, What? Some of you are getting into this, and this is wonderful. You're encouraged in this. And, and let me just encourage you, if, if this is you and you're thankful in this season, go and be an encouragement to somebody. Look, look for someone who is struggling and go and bless them, encourage them, sing, sing praise, right? So be joyful. Uh, the reality is some of you in this room are not doing so well. Maybe on the outside we present and we say, yeah, life is great, but we're barely holding it together. Think about 2020. Was that a great year? My sarcasm coming out. 2021 has tried to kind of follow suit, right? And there's a sense of fatigue, tiredness. There's been a lot of loss, whether it's loss of someone you know, or a job, or a relationship. Planting a church in this season for us has not been easy. It's been filled with challenge. I lost a, a friend this last week, this last Thursday. So I'm feeling the weight of, whew, it's supposed to be a joyous time, and yet there's loss. And some of you know what that's like. And I want us to see here that hope is not an avoidance of darkness. It's not a denial of what is difficult in life. It's not putting on a happy face and saying, I'm wonderful, okay? Hope is often best understood in the midst of darkness, in the context of suffering and pain. That's when we actually understand what hope really is. And that's the context of Isaiah. It's darkness, it's gloom, it's Assyrians coming in, and Isaiah is going, but there's a light. There's light breaking into the darkness. So that's where he's, that's where he's going. I think the question is, if we are experiencing difficulty in life, if we're feeling numb, if we're feeling pain, where do we find our hope? Are we, are we finding it in Jesus Christ? Or are we looking to other places? And that will tell us what we actually believe about who Jesus is. Is he powerful? Is he strong? Is he the comforter? Do we run to him? Isaiah speaks of this light, and you would think that he might be aware of the strong military leader that is coming in. Speaking of Jesus, he's looking beyond the current situation. He's looking to a day when this new king will come with a kingdom where the light will displace the darkness. 
So he's, he's looking beyond. In my Bible, uh, chapter 8, the coming Assyrian army. Doesn't sound good, does it? In chapter 9, what's his answer? A child is born. Do you see the contrast? Here's an army coming, thick warriors, going to destroy you. Isaiah says, there's hope. There's a child that's one day coming. Look at verse 6 with me. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Isaiah wrote this 700 years before the birth of Christ. And Jesus was born in this little town of Bethlehem. God arrived, showed up with Mary in a miraculous way. And so you've got these two teenagers, probably pimpled face, trying to figure out life, hormones. They're looking down at this little infant in awe. How, how did this happen? The phrase, to us a child is born, speaks of the humanity of Jesus. The reality that Jesus was a human child. We may sing the song, Away in a Manger, right? And you hear the lines, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Not really theologically correct, is that? No, Jesus needed to be, needed to be fed, he needed to be changed, he needed to be held, he needed to be comforted. He, he, was a, he was a little one, little infant. And then the phrase, to us a son is given, actually speaks of the divinity of Jesus. He is already a son. He's a son to his father in the heavenly realm, but he is given to us as a son. He's not born, he's given, speaking of the deity of Jesus. And so when you think about the contrast of these two, here's Mary and Joseph looking and holding this infant, comforting him, and also looking into the face of God himself. How crazy would that be, right? Adrian Rogers, who's a pastor, he writes about this newborn. This little baby that was upon the straw is the mighty God of Genesis 1. This little baby who held Mary's hand as a toddler and learned to walk is the one from whom the one whose fingertips sprang suns and oceans dripped. He is the mighty God. This little boy playing with shavings in Joseph's carpenter shop is the one who made every tree and every hill and every mountain. He is the mighty God. The wise men, we know came from the east. They had seen the stars and they said, the Messiah has been born and they make this journey and they travel to Jerusalem and they're looking for Jesus. And what are they gonna do? They're gonna bring him gifts and they're gonna bow down and they're gonna worship him, right? And Herod hears of this. And what does Herod say? Oh yeah, I wanna, I wanna worship him too. Where is he? And he's reminded of the prophecies and it's been two years and he has not gone out to see Jesus it's only seven miles away. And what does Herod do? He sends soldiers to go execute little boys two years and under. And so even as a, as a young 
child, Jesus is causing different reactions. Some who are gonna worship him because they know he's the king. He's the infant, but he's the king. And then you have Herod who says, he's the king. Let's destroy him. It's interesting that even today, Jesus causes different reactions, doesn't he? And I think the question before us is, are we bowing down in worship to him or are we mildly impressed with him? Jesus says, if you're lukewarm, I'd rather spew you out of my mouth. He's calling for worship because he's the king. That's the reaction he wants from us. And so is your hope in him? Is your hope in King Jesus? If your heart is continually filled with anxiety and stress and uncertainty, and you have not gone to Jesus as the Prince of Peace, you don't believe that he brings peace, right? If we don't believe God is mighty, we'll never go to him with anything big, any burden, because we don't believe he can handle that. And so what we believe about God really is incredibly significant for our lives. Here's what A.W. Tozer wrote. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Interesting, what we think about God. And why is this? It's because what we believe about God informs how we live. If we pray, what we pray about, what kind of prayers do we offer to him? For example, if we believe that God is a harsh judge, we're always gonna be trying, right? Always striving, always trying to get his approval and always falling short. We can never measure up. He's always finding us guilty. And we, we don't like that kind of God. We don't have a good relationship with that God, kind of God. We fear him. On the other hand, if we picture God as this heavenly being who's got gray hair and this old long beard and he's kind of forgetful sometimes and he's like, oh, you kiddies and just love each other and sin, it's okay. We'll, we'll never confess. We'll never be broken before him. We'll never ask him for anything. He, he doesn't really have power. He's not really strong. He's this old grandfather figure. So how we view God is incredibly important. And this is where Isaiah helps us because he tells us who Jesus is. He gives us four names. And today we get to look at Jesus as the mighty God. The words in the Hebrew are El Gabor. You ever heard that? It was new to me, but stick that in your, in your mind. He is the El Gabor. Mighty uh, means to have great strength and power. The word gibor, when it's used in scripture, it's commonly associated with warfare, with the victorious warrior. The first use of the word gibor is actually in reference to the Nephilim. You guys know what the Nephilim are? Go ask Jared about the Nephilim. These are when the, 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 the mighty angels came into the daughters of men. I'm not making this up. And out of that came the men of renown, the old and mighty men, the men of Gabor, the men of strength. Maybe you've heard of David's mighty men. These were 37 guys who were strong. They were trained as warriors. They fought with David and they were known as the Gaborim. These were the guys you didn't want to mess with. They were the Gaborim. 
And then throughout the Old Testament, the word gabor continues to show up. Here's, here it shows up in Psalm 24, 8. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. Isaiah 42, 13, the Lord will go forth like a what? A warrior and will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. Have you thought about God in this way? I grew up playing rugby and uh, I don't know if you ever watched rugby. Have you ever, ever seen the New Zealand All Blacks? Yeah, you know what they do, right? Are you gonna do that for us th today? No, I can't do it, but they do this thing called the haka, right? Where they're like, and they're, they have war paint. And the other team, like they're the English, you know, they're just like, they're just frantic. And this is before the rugby match even starts. And it's to intimidate. And so when we think about power and aggression and warrior, this is how Isaiah is describing Jesus. He is a warrior. He is mighty. He is strong. Is this how we think about Jesus, though? Is this our first response when we think about Jesus? I know for me, I tend to think about Jesus as the suffering servant. He's the one who will get down and wash feet. He is the spotless lamb who goes to be slaughtered for you and me. So I think of humility when I think of Jesus, and that's not wrong but we can often forget about his power and his strength. Here's Philippians 2. Uh, Jesus, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of me. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death and even death on, on a cross. That, that speaks of his humility. But, but the verse continues, right? Therefore, God has done what? exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, right? And on earth and under the earth, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Power, glory, worship for what he's done. He's humbled himself. What does he get? He gets us, the church, and he is to be worshiped and praised. Isaiah knows about the power of God. He's had a vision. You can read about this in Isaiah chapter six. King Uzziah has died and Isaiah goes into the temple, right? And there's a void of leadership in the land and he goes into the temple and who's on the throne? It's the Lord. It's the Lord. And he's caught up in the scene. He sees these angelic beings. He sees the seraphim. And these are, these are not human beings. These are creatures in a heavenly realm who can be in the presence of God. And they've got wings, two covering their eyes because they cannot look on God himself. Two covering their feet because the feet represent something that's connected to the earth and the ground is holy. So they're covering their feet and with their other two wings, they're flying crazy scene. And over and over they're saying, holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And over and over again, holy, holy, holy. And they're caught up in the scene of worship because they know who he is. Nowhere else in scripture is a three-peat given to describe who God is. He is never called mercy, 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 or God is love, love, love. And so here we have this three-peat of God is holy, holy, holy. When you picture that, there's a sense of power, there's a sense of, of might, of strength. To be holy is to be other. It's to be, it's to be separate, to be unlike any other thing. And when we think about God and his perfection, he is like, unlike any other. He is not like us. He is completely holy, completely perfect. And these beings are caught up in this scene. And we see that the Lord speaks. We don't know what he says, but Isaiah is probably freaking out. <laughs> the temple begins to shake at the voice of the Lord and smoke fills the temple. I'm sure Isaiah is, is shaking as well. All he does in this moment is feel his own sinfulness, his own brokenness in the presence of a mighty God. And what does he say? Woe is me, for I am lost. I, have, I am a man of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So he's, he's broken and he's undone in the presence of a mighty God. And yet here's the seraphim who gets a coal with some tongs, who comes up to his lips and puts the coal to his lips, searing them in a, say, in, in a way saying, your guilt has been dealt with. There is one who will come who will take away your sin and your brokenness, and you can be in the presence of a mighty God. So Isaiah has had this experience. Who, who will atone for his sin? It's actually Jesus Christ. It's, it's the warrior Jesus Christ who even in Isaiah's day, his sin, there's a foreshadowing that works backwards and atones for Isaiah's sin, even in that day. It's Jesus Christ, the El Gabor. I can't help but think about Jesus in his last few days. Jesus before Pilate. Here's Pilate, the human authority, Right? And here's Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, all of glory. And Pilate says to him, he's, Jesus is bound. So you're a king. Yeah, he's a king. Jesus says, you say that I'm a king and for this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate what is truth? It's not the right response, is it? What is truth? He's speaking to the truth, the person of Jesus, and he throws up his hands and he says, what's truth? And he hands Jesus over to be flogged. It is out of strength that Jesus endures the suffering that he does. He remains steadfast under the trial. He is not weak in any way. He is the El Gabor as he goes to his death. We see glimpses of his power throughout his life, though, don't we? We see the humanity of Jesus. He's tired. He gets to go to sleep. 
And yet we, when, when he turns water into wine, like, what? Who, who is this? When he, when he has power over disease and sickness and he says to the paralytic, get up and take your mat with you. When he raises the dead, you see his power. I love the story of Jesus on the lake with his disciples. Jesus is tired. He's exhausted. He's taking a nap on this boat. And there's the storm that comes. Remember the storm? And the disciples are so angry, they probably shake Jesus and they say, don't you care we're dying here? Jesus was probably dreaming. <laughs> he, he wakes up and he sees the storm and he, and he looks at the, the wind and he says to the sea, be calm. He rebukes it. And there's probably this eerie calm. Can you imagine being in a storm and weather and then just all of a sudden, calm? And then the scripture says that, that the, the disciples were afraid and Jesus looked at them and said, why are you so afraid? Don't you have faith? And they end up muttering to each other, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? This is Jesus Christ. But as Jesus makes his journey to the cross, he doesn't seem very powerful. Doesn't seem like his power is on display. Here, here's a disciple of his, Judas, who actually betrays him. And Jesus does nothing. He, he doesn't intervene. He knows it. He doesn't intervene. He is mocked. He is spit upon. The crown of thorns is put on his head. His beard is ripped out. For those of you who are Idaho men, you have a beard. Can you imagine your beard being ripped out? Not just the pain of it, but how that is uh, against your character and who you are. Like, we're going to just toy with you here. His disciples flee the scene as Jesus is whipped with lashes uh, of leather with bones attached to those. Jesus is made to carry his own cross. You guys, he's so weak at this point. He cannot carry his own cross. There's Simon of Cyrene, an African man that is called, hey, you, you carry his cross. And Jesus walks with him. And Jesus is placed on the cross. C can you imagine... I've never really thought about this too much and maybe it's not good to, but Satan and his legions of demons watching this scene and gloating over it. What's gonna happen with Jesus? Looks like he's going down. Is he powerless? Are we gonna win? And just looking into this and going, he looks really weak here. Hebrews writes of Jesus that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross interesting, isn't it? For the joy set before him. Why was there joy when it comes to the cross? It's because Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew what he was securing by going to the cross. He was securing you and me, right? And there was joy in that in the midst of the trial and suffering and in strength he endured. And so Jesus cries out to his father on the cross, Father, why have you forsaken me? He dies. He, he, he drops his head on the cross to the side. His body goes limp. What, what a crazy scene. There, there must have been earthquakes and, and darkness. Remember the Roman centurion? Surely this was the son of God. So some crazy things happening in that moment. But Jesus dies. He physically dies. And he's, 
His limp body is taken off the cross and it's, he's placed in a, in a tomb. And just like right now, there's quietness. There was a, there was a sadness, right, that came over the, over the land. But, but in the darkness, something was happening. Jesus, the mighty one, was atoning for our sin. He was accomplishing salvation, and, and that is incredible. He is paying the ransom for the debt that was on us. All the judgment and condemnation that was on us, Jesus was dealing with in the cross, and you guys know the story. He didn't stay in the grave, did he? No, no. The grave couldn't hold him. He was more powerful than death. Death has no hold on him. When he raised Lazarus, we were talking about this earlier, um, it was a foreshadowing in many ways of the picture of his own death and his own resurrection. Remember what he told to uh, Martha? I am the resurrection and the life. You guys, there's nothing more powerful than Jesus. He defeats death, comes out of the, the grave. He is the beginning and the end, as you have on your uh, artwork here. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the eternal one, and death has no hold on him in any way. He is the El Gabor. Not only did he defeat death for himself, but he defeats eternal death for us, for those who trust in him. Here's how Paul puts it in Colossians 2 verses 13. And you who were dead in the trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So good. Death to life. And you guys, if, if you are in Christ, this is a picture of, of you, right? You were dead in your sins. You were dead in your trespasses. And yet Jesus has stood in the middle <laughs> and you have life in him. You have forgiveness. You have freedom. How does Jesus do this? Scripture goes on. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus is victorious over death and over the enemy. You guys, there's a record of debt that is on us before we know Jesus. Okay, think about that. All, all of the weight of your sin, your suffering, all of that on you. More than student loans, more than medical bills, right? Whatever financial issues you've had or will have, bigger than those, uh, more than any mortgage payment, more than any criminal charge that could ever get filed against you, you had a record of debt. And Jesus, what does, he do, what does he do with it? He nails it to the cross. This is what scripture says. He nails it to the cross. Jesus, the mighty one, he takes our guilt, he takes our condemnation, our shame, our judgment, and he wears it and he places it on himself. And then in his death, he destroys that and he crushes it. And in his resurrection, he shows his power over death. Amen? That's what our king does. Our debt is canceled. And where it was writ written guilty, 
That, that's the place we go, right? We, we, we want to live in guilt and shame. Where it was written guilty, Jesus said, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh If you trust in me, he stamps it in red, innocent. Debt canceled, freedom, abundance, peace, joy, hope, all of those things in me. And I just want to give you a, a warning this morning and an invitation. If you're here this morning and, and you are uncertain if you have placed your trust in Jesus or if you know for sure, you go, I have not placed my trust in Jesus, know that you have a record of debt that is on you. You just need to be aware of that and know that you have not given that over to Jesus. And you're saying, God, I know that you sent your son Jesus into the world, but I'm good. I'm good. I got this handled. And so the invitation is to come to him and to offer him all of your sin and brokenness and shame and say, Jesus, I know what you've done for me. There was a war scene in Isaiah's life in his world, and the light came in. There's a war scene in my life. I need you to come in. And so there's an invitation today to do that while you still can. For those of us who know Jesus as Lord and Savior, man, you're a target from the enemy. He loves to lie, right? That's who he is. He is the deceiver, and he will take up our record of debt, the old copy of it, and go, you're not good enough. You, you need to feel shame. You need to feel the sin and the guilt. And he, and he holds that up and says, this is who you are. We've got to learn how to fight that, right? Go, no, no. My, my king defeated you. Your, your tail may still be waggling around because you're alive in some way, but the Satan uh, crusher has done his work. He has, he has smashed your head. That's the reality. That God is stronger. He is, he is stronger than any enemy. Paul tells us that Jesus, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he puts them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He puts his enemy to open shame. Can you imagine the enemy watching Jesus step out of the grave? Oh man, oh man, we thought this was done. Maybe there was something happening. It got quiet. And then to see Jesus come out of the tomb, oh boys, we got something, we got some trouble here. Yeah. Jesus disarms the rulers and authorities. This is a picture of a, a, a victory parade. When a king would go to battle, to war, and he was victorious against the enemy that had taken advantage of his people, they would often bring back the spoils of, of war through town. They would parade all the loot and all the artwork and the spoils of war and the treasures and the paintings and the gold and the silver and they would bring them back in their own town and there would be a victory parade, right? And sometimes they would bring in the enemy, the king himself through in town. And Paul is saying, this is what Jesus has done with the enemy, with Satan. This is a victory parade and Jesus has won. He is defeated. So you guys, Jesus is the victorious king. He is the one whose name we praise. We praise the name of the Lord our God. I'll just end with a few thoughts from Revelation because in Revelation, John gives us a picture of this warrior king. As the book opens, Jesus appears to John and what does he do? He falls down as though dead. 
He's shaking in his boots and he just lays on the ground. Here's a picture in Revelation. The, the heavens will open wide and there will be this white horse and on the white horse is a rider who is called Faithful and True. And he judges and he makes war in pure righteousness. His eyes are a blaze of fire and on his head he has many crowns. And he has a name inscribed that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe that is soaked in blood and he is called the very word of God. These don't seem like very passive descriptions, do they? No, it's a, it's a different Jesus than I often think about in humility. It's like this is when he's coming back in power and in strength. And following Jesus are the armies of heaven and these are riders on horses and they're dressed in pure white. This will not be a good day if you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And it will be a beautiful day if you do. There is a sharp sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus Christ to strike the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread on the winepress of the raging wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, it is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. You don't want to mess with this guy. He's coming to set up his kingdom. He's the warrior who has defeated Satan and will destroy him fully. And at this point, uh, the government will be completely on the shoulders of Jesus. You see, in his first coming, he had to put the cross on his shoulders and come as a humble servant. But when he returns, he's coming in victory and power, and he's coming as the king. Do you get that? The description of Jesus is that he is, when it, when it describes his heart in Scripture, he's gentle and lowly in heart. And so in his presence, he will be warm and welcoming, and we will, we will feel his presence. We will dine with him and eat with him, and it will be good. But it is his power and his zeal that will accomplish that, that can make that happen. And so Jesus will come. He will rule as the wonderful counselor. He will bring his godly wisdom to bear. He is the everlasting father and we will not be orphans or slaves. We will be family. We will be sons and daughters in the kingdom. We will be together with him. He's the prince of peace. No more war. No more bloody garments. No more fighting. There will be an end to that. So you think about all the strife in the world today. The king is gonna come. He's gonna defeat all of that. He's gonna make things new. Jesus, the serpent crusher, he defeats Satan. We know his tail is still causing destruction, but he has no power in the same way that he once did. The king has put an end to that. And so our work as believers, if you know Jesus, is to trust in the work that Jesus has done and to recognize that is transforming the way that I should live now. So present tense, and there is a day coming when everything will be made new and I will be invited into that. So we have a bright future. Jesus is not weak. He is the mighty God. So in your frame of mind, if you think of Jesus as passive and weak, confess that and believe what Isaiah says of Jesus, that he is the El, what is it? The El Gabor, the mighty one who has it tattooed probably on his leg, king of kings and lord of lords, glory. Is he your king? 
Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are not weak. You're more powerful than we could ever understand. Because of that truth, we can actually express our own weakness. We can express our own pain and suffering and brokenness and anxiety and stress. And we say, Lord, I need help. And you're strong enough to do that. So Father, our our right response this morning is to reframe our minds around this truth, to respond in, in worship to you. You are the mighty king, the king of glory. And so, Father, where we are tempted to be like people who find meaning and hope elsewhere, I pray that you would strike that down. Take away our, fight, our false idols. Help us to lean into you as the true king who is powerful and mighty. Father, as we think about the cross, as we think about what you've done, may our hearts exude with praise and worship. We trust you, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen.